Well, good morning, one and all. <coughs> Welcome once again to Peace Presbyterian Church. For those who have not met me, my name is Pastor Andrew. I am the pastor here. This morning, we begin our series on the book of Deuteronomy. I know it's everyone's favorite book. Everyone's been looking forward to this. Everyone's been excited for this. And today, we finally start. This series will carry us through the summer. Uh, and we're starting this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we'll just read verses 5 through 8 this morning. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey, and go to the hill country of the Amorites, and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and in the Negev, and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites in Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Look, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Will you pray with me one more time? Lord God, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, I pray that if I say anything this morning that, that you did not will, that you did not want me to say, I pray that you would bring it to nothing, oh God. If there's anything I missed this morning, I pray that you would impress that point on the hearts of these people anyway. Let these not be my words, oh God. Let them be yours as we hear you from your holy scriptures this morning. And guide us and bless us as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. There's a preacher um, whose name I'm not going to say because I'm going to preach against him a little bit, if that's okay. Uh, if I said his name, you might recognize it. Maybe you wouldn't, but that's, that's not really the point. This pastor said that at some point we have to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Basically... The Old Testament, or so he says, is so full of just, just weird stuff, stuff that's really difficult to get over, stuff that is really hard to understand, that as Christians, we really shouldn't mess with that at all. We shouldn't preach on the Old Testament. We have plenty of New Testament that we can talk through, that, that we understand and that, and that fits with you know, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. So we just really should focus on the Old Testament, and we should unhitch ourselves from the old, so we should focus on the new, unhitch ourselves from the old. The problem with that is that if you read through the New Testament, if you read through the second half of the Bible, you will find all kinds of quotations, references, looks back to the Old Testament, that older part of the Bible. In fact, and I, I saw this statistic online a couple weeks ago, there's only 12 chapters in the entire New Testament that don't have any mention or reference or look back to the Old Testament. Only 12 chapters. So it seems to me that if we are going to truly understand the New Testament, if we're really going to grasp it and what it says, we really need to look at and understand the Old Testament. And what it says, there are, there are three books of the Bible that Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament quoted more than any of the other books. 
You guys are going to get one of them because we're preaching through it, but do you guys know what the other two are? Three books. Shout them out. Isaiah and Psalms. You guys nailed it. The book of Psalms, not Proverbs. Proverbs is close. It's up there, but it's not one of the big three. So Psalms as a book for, for the Christian is, is a book that we're really familiar with, right? We enjoy preaching through the Psalms. We enjoy reading them. They're very devotional. The book of Isaiah is a lot more difficult to get through, but it's a book that we really respect, right? It's what we're going through on Thursday afternoons. But the book of Deuteronomy is the third most referenced book in the New Testament. So if we're going to be Christians who value all of God's word, if we're going to look at all of the scriptures and say, yes, all of this is authoritative for our lives, all of this is, is for our blessing and for our benefit, it's for our instruction, if we're going to be Christians who have a high view of scripture, even if we're just going to have a high view of the New Testament, we have to spend some time having a high view of the Old Testament. The Old Testament's divided into a few different sections. The Hebrew Bible is divided into three. There are the writings, which Psalms is kind of the big book there. There's the prophets, which Isaiah kind of represents. And then there's the book called the Torah. Sometimes it's translated law. That's not necessarily the best translation of the word Torah. We're going to get into that in future weeks. But the first five books of the Bible are God's instruction to his people. They are the introduction to the whole thing. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it may be that you, as, as a Christian, and I, I know I've tried this, have read through the Bible in a year. I recommend doing that at least once in your lifetime, if not every year. But if you tr ever try to read through the Bible in a year, you start at Genesis, right? And it's, it's really easy to get through, and there are all these stories, and there's relatable characters. And then there's the book of Exodus, and it's amazing, and you, know, you see what God has done. And then you get to the second half of Exodus... And there's like instructions for the tabernacle. And you're like, okay, this is, this is way too much for me. You're basically reading a blueprint. And then you get into Leviticus, and it's just kind of like a bunch of rules for sacrifices. And then you get into Numbers. My favorite one of these chapters is in the book of Numbers, where it's listing all of the, all of the things that the different tribes brought to the temple. And it's the same list over and over, but for each of the 12 different tribes. It's like, and the tribe of Issachar brought this, and the tribe of Dan brought this, and it's just the same thing over and over. And if, if, we don't, if we don't dive into this, if we don't try to understand what these books were doing for the people to whom they were written, we're going to miss something. It's hard to get into. I realize that, and I know that. But it's worth doing. So for the next several weeks, for the next few months, we're going to be going through the book of Deuteronomy, finding out what it says, finding out what it meant for the people of God in the Old Testament, what it means for us today. I should note, we're not going to spend a lot of time going through all of the really weird laws in the second half of Deuteronomy. I'm not saying we're not going to do that at all, but the, most of our time is going to be spent looking at God and his relationship to his people. What we are doing is, I'm going to, we're going to try this out on Monday nights at 8 p.m., I'm going to try a Facebook Live where we just try to answer some of these some of these awkward, weird questions about what these laws are. Because if you read through the book of Deuteronomy, there's some laws that are, they seem kind of sexist or racist or just really, really regressive. And we're going to spend time each week on Monday night looking at one after the other. And feel free to send in suggestions for those, and we will do our best to answer each one. We're not going to shy away from more awkward ones. 
And that's going to be Monday nights. For us this morning, we're going to spend time looking at what God has done in the book of Deuteronomy. But before we actually dive into Deuteronomy, we need to look at the story so far. What has already happened in the, in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible? What's happened? Where are we at in the book of Deuteronomy? What's already gone on in the story? The story starts, as most stories in the Bible do, at the very beginning with the story of Adam and Eve. We talk about Adam and Eve a lot in our preaching, and there's a reason for that. The story of Adam and Eve is so central to the rest of the Bible that we're going to be looking at it a whole lot as we go through the Bible, but that's where the story starts. God created Adam and Eve perfect, and they lived in a garden where they could meet with God and have perfect fellowship with God. But God gave them a command. God gave them a command. And if you look throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to see the word command used. But God gave Adam and Eve one command. That command was, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't an apple tree. It was a knowledge of good and evil tree. And he said, don't eat of that tree. You can eat of all of the other trees. Just don't eat of that one. So what did they do? They ate of the tree. Of course they did, right? Because that's the only thing that they couldn't do. They were like, oh, let's go see what that tastes like. Because of that, because God gave them a choice, they had the opportunity to choose between life and death. Either they kept the command or they disobeyed the command. Either they chose life or they chose death, and they chose death. God drove them out of his presence, out of the Garden of Eden, and he did something. He the Bible says that he cursed the ground. God cursed this sacred place so that this place that was supposed to function as a temple where they could go to meet God would no longer function like that. And as we go through the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, we see humanity continuing to make choices against God's commandments. We continue to rebel against God, and God continues to push humanity further and further out of his sacred presence. Cain kills Abel. It's the first murder in the Bible. So God drives Cain out into the wilderness, even farther from the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 6, in the story of Noah, humanity grew so wicked that God decided to start over, and he, he floods the world. I mentioned the flood last week and how it can, in the Old Testament sometimes it's symbolic of death. I want to go into that a little bit more this morning because I feel like I, I rushed by it a little bit that, this last week. But you guys know in those old German fairy tales, or those children's stories, not really fairy tales, the role that the, the woods play, the forest Right? So like Little Red Riding Hood, like she's going off to Grandma's house and she decides to take the shortcut through the woods. So she gets eaten by a wolf, spoilers. She gets eaten by a wolf and then the wolf goes and dresses like her and then eats her grandma too. Right? For some reason, German stories for little kids, they're just not great stories for little kids. But that's another thing for another time. Hansel and Gretel, right? They go wandering into the forest. They're like, oh, what could be out here? Let's leave breadcrumbs. And then, like, the birds come and eat the breadcrumbs, and they have no idea what's going on, so they wind up getting eaten by a witch in the forest. The reason for that is because the woods in that culture, they had a thing called the Black Forest in Germany, and it was dangerous. 
It was deep and dark. And so they, there was this mythology that was built up around it, that the forest was a place of death. It was something to be feared. The water, for ancient Israelites, was a really similar thing. They lived on, on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And while some cultures were really good at sailing those seas, a lot of cultures weren't. And the ocean was a place of death for them. It represented being far from God. It was the deep. It was the dark. Being in the ocean was in a physical sense, this is kind of the way they thought, was being far away from God as you could be. And when God sent the flood on the world, he wasn't just judging them, which he was. He was saying, you guys are being sent as far away as a people from me as possible. You keep sinning. You keep sinning. You keep sinning. So I'm going to take you out of my presence, and you're not going to have fellowship with me. That's the story of the first few chapters of the Bible. It happens again in Genesis 11. They try to build this temple, this tower, the Tower of Babel, up to God. They try to get to God in their own way. So God once again knocks it down and scatters them away from him. That's the story. Humanity makes a choice to sin. They're giving a commandment. They choose death in that commandment. And so God sends them away from him. And even though God started over with Noah... The problem is inside of us. The problem needs to be fixed in our hearts. In Genesis 12, something else happens. We talked last week about the four different movements of Scripture, kind of the, the structure of the story. There's creation, there's the fall, and then in Genesis 12 starts redemption. God's work to save his people. That starts in Genesis chapter 12, when God comes to Abraham, and he makes Abraham a promise. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. In him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you've been following the story so far, what God is promising to do to Abraham is not just, you know, make him rich and give him a bunch of descendants. He's promising to undo what happened to Adam and Eve. Because right, they, were, they were driven from the presence of God, this sacred land. God cursed the ground. God was promising to bring Abraham and his descendants back to this land, back to this place where they could have fellowship with God and bring blessing upon the entire world in order to reverse the cursing that God had already done. God is promising that he's going to fix this thing, and he's going to use Abraham and his descendants in order to do it. He's going to make, them, make of them a great nation. They're going to be incredibly numerous, incredibly, you know, this, this huge multitude. And because of them and the way they live, God is going to bring a blessing to the nations. In Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham again. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me 
and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. In the next chapter, God says this of Abraham, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There's a tension here. In Genesis 12, God never gives Abraham a command that he has to do in order to receive these promises. He just makes the promise. He just says, I am going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless everyone through you. I'm going to undo what I did at first. But later on, it says, in order that these things may happen, you have to walk before me and be blameless. You have to do righteousness and justice. There's a tension there. And again, we're going to talk more about that tension in the coming weeks and and how that plays out. But it's worth asking the question, did Abraham have to do anything in order for God to bless him? Because we know that Abraham was a righteous man, but he was far from a perfect man. The Bible records all kinds of misdeeds that Abraham did, lies that he told, sins that he committed, ways in which he failed to trust God. But God still promised Abraham that he would do these things. Through Abraham, even though he was sinful, even though he didn't live up to the calling that God had given him, God was faithful to his promises. He said, I'm still, even though you are sinful, I'm going to count your trust in me as righteousness, and I'm going to still accomplish what I promised you. You are still going to have descendants. They are still going to occupy a land similar to the Garden of Eden, where they can come and meet with me in a fellowship. And through that, because of the way that they live, they're going to bless the world. They're going to bring humanity back to the Garden of Eden, back to that place of fellowship with God. God is going to accomplish that through Abraham and his descendants. But through the rest of the book of Genesis we see Abraham and his descendants kind of get farther and farther from that promise. Abraham lived in the land that God promised to him. But Abraham never really settled it. He was just kind of a wanderer in this land. And his kids were wanderers after him for a couple generations until a famine hit. And all of, all of Abraham's great-grandkids, they fled to the land of Egypt, where they weren't You know, in Egypt, their crops aren't dependent on the rain because they have the Nile flowing through them. So When there wasn't rain, they went to the Nile, or the land of the Nile, so that they could have abundance there. And for years, Abraham's descendants lived not in the land that God promised to them, not in the land that he was going to bring them back to, not in the land of blessing, but in the land of Egypt. And after a time, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, enslaved them. And this is a story that that may be very familiar to you if you've ever watched The Prince of Egypt or The Ten Commandments. You've heard the story about how God brought his people out of the land of Egypt. They were in slavery there. In order for God to fulfill his promise, he has to bring them out of slavery and take them to this land that he had promised them, the land that they can inhabit, the land that they can have fellowship with God in, the place where they can start to be a blessing to all of the nations. He had to do something amazing. So the Bible says God redeemed Israel from Egypt. Now that word redeem, it's kind of a Christian-y word. Sometimes we can, we can throw it around a lot. 
But what that means ultimately is to buy something back, right? Like if you have a coupon, you get in the paper and you're going to go to the store and you're going to get toilet paper 20% off or whatever it is, you can redeem that coupon for its value. It's buying something. And when God redeemed his people from Israel, it's not like, or excuse me, redeemed his people from Egypt, it's not like he, you know, paid money to Pharaoh or paid money to some force of darkness in order to bring them out. That's not what that is. A better idea to think of it, or a better way to think of it, is God spared no expense in order to bring people, his people out of Egypt. God sent plagues upon Egypt. God challenged the supremacy of all the Egyptian gods. He said, oh, the god of the Nile? I can totally change the Nile to blood. He did this time after time with all of these plagues. He, in another place, the Bible says, God, with his right arm, with his strong right arm, he brought his people out of Egypt. He flexed, if you were. God brought his people out of the land of Egypt, spared no expense to bring them out of this place where they were enslaved so that he could fulfill his promise to Abraham, fulfill, you know, ultimately what happened in the Garden of Eden at first and bring the people back to the land so that they could be blessed and they could be a blessing to the nations. God brings Israel up to the Red Sea, right? This arm, of, this arm of an ocean. And remember what we said earlier about what the ocean meant in the culture of that time. It was a place of death. And even though Pharaoh had let the people go, he changed his mind after a couple days and he chased them down with his army. So Israel is caught in this place between death and death. There's no way out for them. So God brings them through death itself. He redeems them. He saves them. He does a mighty work in them. And then he brings the sea crashing down in the armies of Pharaoh. He defeats death with death. And he brings his people through it. And after that, they come to a place called Mount Sinai. It's called Horeb in this, uh, in this text. If you, you know, when we read the Bible earlier, Horeb is just another word for Mount Sinai. But he brings them to this place and it's there that God enters into a relationship with this people, a formal relationship called covenant. He introduces himself to them. He says, I am the Lord your God. The word the Lord there is God's name. In the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. But in our English Bibles, it's translated the Lord because some people see that as, as a holy name. That's something you're never supposed to say. So he says, I am Yahweh your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And just as God introduced himself to Abraham and said, walk before me and be perfect, he gives them 10 commandments. He says, if you want to please me, if you want to live in righteousness before me, do these 10 things. These are the things that I care about. This is how to have a good relationship with me. And Israel is all set up to do what God has promised them, to walk before God in righteousness, to go in and take the land and be this perfect people who undo what Adam and Eve did. But is that what happened? No. Israel, kind of like you know, the, the little kid that you say, don't do this, and they're like, oh, you mean this? Kind of like Adam and Eve, who when they're told not to eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, they're like, oh, you mean like this? As... Just a few days after God gave them the commandments, 
the second commandment. Don't make any graven images. Don't make a statue that's supposed to be like who God is. Moses goes up on the mountain, and the people are like, oh, we should make a statue that is like what God's supposed to be. And so they make a golden calf, and they say, oh, this is Yahweh our God who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. And God becomes incredibly angry, and he, he's on the verge of destroying his people because just, just immediately they're stubborn, they're stiff-necked, and they, they just immediately disobey God. But God has mercy on them because of what he promised to Abraham. He promised that he would bring his people to this place so that they could bless the world. After Israel did everything that they did at Mount Sinai, Right? They built a tabernacle, they built this place where they could, it was kind of like a portable Mount Sinai, so they didn't have to meet God at that mountain, they could kind of bring it around and they could have fellowship with God. In the tabernacle, they could go and worship him in that place. They just, a couple months later, they traveled up to the edge of the promised land, and it was time. Time to undo what God did to Adam and Eve, time to, instead of being driven from God's presence, to go back into it, to have a relationship with God there, to bless the nations. And what did they do? They send out spies throughout the land. There's 12 spies, one for every, one for every tribe. And they, the spies come back, and they say, oh man, the land is full of giants, the land is huge, it's massive, there's no way we can do this. Keep in mind, a year before, God had already brought them out of Egypt. God had already brought them through death itself. He redeemed them, he saved them. That was who their God is but they balked. They walked up to the edge of the land and they said, nope, we don't want to do this. Let's go back to Egypt. Imagine that. Lest we, lest we take this story and pervert it into something anti-Semitic and say, oh, the Jewish people are, are the stubborn ones. Each of us are in that story. Each of us, even though we've been redeemed by God, we're stubborn. We keep sinning, and we keep sinning, and we keep sinning. Even though God has saved us, even though God has told us how he wants us to live, we find ourselves in that story. And so the, na the nation of Israel that left Egypt, all of, the, all of the adults, everyone who was over the age of 20 except for the two spies that had wanted to go into the land, everyone else wandered in the wilderness for 40 years kind of just made a little circular pattern throughout the things and then just wandered around basically waiting for that older generation to die. Because even though Israel had disobeyed God's commands, God was still faithful to his promise. God was still going to undo the curse that Adam and Eve brought on that land. He was still going to bring blessing to that land. And he was still going to use Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel, to do it. So the book of Deuteronomy takes place after those 40 years of wandering. After that first generation had left the land of Egypt, after they had wandered in the wilderness and died, and their children were now adults in their place. Finally, they come to the edge of the land. They're just across the Jordan River from, from this place. Moses, at this point, 40 years on, is an incredibly old man. Moses isn't going to get to go into the land either. That's a different story for a different day. But he gathers the people around him. 
And he wants to take time to review the instruction that God has given his people. Review the story. Tell them all. The, kid, the, you know, the people who were kids when they came out of Egypt. The people who probably don't remember it. Maybe they were teenagers. Maybe they were just children in their parents' arms. But they just took time to stop and remember what God had done for them. And Moses tells them the story. Deuteronomy comes from the Greek word for second law. Do you know like a duet when, when two people sing? It, take, it comes from the word for two. That's what Deuteronomy means, second law. It's a second retelling. Excuse me, it's a retelling, the first retelling, the second time it was told. It's a retelling of God's law, God's instruction, what God has done for them, what God expects them to do. And as we read through this book, we can picture a people on the edge of the promised land, on the edge of fulfilling what God has done, what God has promised for them. On the edge of going in and taking it, they stop. They remember what God has done for them, and they remember how God has commanded them to live. We're going to talk about all that in the coming weeks. But for now, as we stop and we pause, let us remember that God is faithful to his promises. There's a tension there. God promises something that will certainly happen. But God, along with that promise, commands his people to live in a certain way. In order, to, in order to, um, to receive the promise that God has given his people, they have to live in a certain way. And even when they don't, God still does it. It's a weird tension there. And that's a comfort for us. We are a people whom just as ancient Israel was brought out of the place of death, brought through death to a place of fellowship with God. We are a people who were brought out of our own Egypt. We were slaves, not in a literal way, but slaves to sin. We needed to be redeemed from our own Egypt. We needed to be brought out. We needed God to spare no expense to flex his right arm and bring us out of our sin, bring us out of the place of death. And just as ancient Israel was brought through death to life, so we are brought with Jesus Christ through his death into his resurrection so that we can experience new life in Christ. That is the only way out of our sin. And if you are here, if you are a believer, if you are in Christ, that is true of you. And your salvation does not depend on whether or not you do the right things or not. It depends on what Christ has already done for you. But along with that comes a way to live. If we are going to be God's people, then we ought to live in a certain way. And if we're honest, if if we look inside of ourselves, look at our hearts, We know that even though we've been saved, even though we've been forgiven, we're still sinful. We look forward to a day in which all of our sin will be removed from us, where we can have perfect fellowship with God. We look forward to the day when God restores his creation, as we talked about last week. But until that day, though we are called to follow God, we do not, as we should. 
the people of God, our God, the same God that Abraham worshipped, or the same God that the people of Israel worshipped, was faithful to his promises despite the failings of his people. Even though Abraham sinned, God never pulled back the promise from him. Even though Israel sinned, God never wiped them out. He still brought them to the promised land. So people of God, take comfort in that. God will still bring you to the promised land, not because of anything that you've done, but because he has already saved you. And yes, there will be a day when we are free from sin, when we can have perfect fellowship with God the Father. When we finally make it to that place, and spoilers, we're still waiting for that promise to Abraham to be fulfilled. Israel never quite fulfilled it. We as the church aren't really quite fulfilling it right now. But there will come a day when we will dwell in that land and God will bless us through Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ. Trust in God that he will fulfill what he has promised, that he will complete what he said he will do. Rest in his promise. Because even though we are sinful, God will still save us. Praise God. Will you pray with me?